se grabará solo la voz. La idea es que vamos a podemos hacerlo en inglés o en, en español. Es muy difícil para mí hablar de mi trabajo en español. ¿Verdad? Mejor hablar en inglés. Okay. Uh, welcome everybody. Hi, it's Toby Miller here. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm here with my friend and former colleague, Veronica Benet Martinez. Veronica, how are you? I'm great. And you just said it's easy for you to talk about your work in English than in Spanish. Why is that? How interesting. Well, I think a lot of people who have been training in the United States will relate to that. And is that you learn the terminology, Uh, you learn uh, to present your results and to talk about your ideas in the context of the United States or an English-speaking, you know, academic context. Uh, and in psychology, so many of the variables and constructs we work with uh, were first labeled in English. So only later they get translations into other languages, and the translations sometimes are funny. What's an Even hilarious. Because I know in the social sciences, I'm used to there being lots of cognates yes. that basically make sense pretty well in Spanish or English. But what are weird ones that are picked up from psychology and English and put into Spanish? Well, things like when you, when you think about you know common constructs like assertiveness or self-esteem, no one had words for those things before no, Americans learned So assertividad. My mom is like, what? ¿Qué es assertividad? <laughs> Apoderamiento, self-empowerment. It's like some, some words in Spanish than it does in English. <laughs> in English, assertiveness is just a polite word for aggression. No, 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 no. No, I understand. No. Anyway, you now. It could be sometimes a euphemism for aggression. Yes. Yeah. But in, in, in the literature, we don't use it, meaning that. between an intervention or an outburst? Then. An intervention and an, an, sorry, an outburst. Because when I'm at conferences, if people start screaming, but lots of the audience likes what they say, it's an intervention. If they start screaming and lots of the audience doesn't like what they say, it's an outburst. Interesting. Is that a, a term from clinical psychology, from like a clinical field? I've never heard of this. I, when In I've been to some conferences where something suddenly jumps up and in a sense misbehaves. Oh really? I've never seen that in psychology. There's no misbehavior in psychology? <laughs> no, I think we are all just, you know, well so well socialized to wait to... Remember also, those are... American psychology and largely Western psychology follows the scientific model. So you have to wait till the data has been presented and the results are analyzed. And then how can you be have how can you disagree? That's what the data says. Right. So it's like if the data says that, you might say yeah, I don't like it. You might actually get irritated with the methods. You might say your methods are biased or your sampling is not good. Therefore, you know, I'm not sure I trust your results. But it's never a personal attack on the ideas, it's more a talk about the data. So and nobody ever gets angry? No. Well, uh, no, not really. No. My friend Faye Ginsburg, who's an anthropologist, claims that we all study what we're about. How? Really? That is... That's very, very interesting, because I also think a lot of people study what they're good at, so that they can feel really good about themselves. <laughs> But yours, from what you're saying, when psychologists get together, they behave terribly well. At work? 
<laughs> we also have great, I'm sure it doesn't match what goes on in the humanities, but we have great parties and dinners and social events after the, the program, you know, after the academic event is over. So after you've had your... We socialize, we go to bed, you know, late at night, and uh, but you have to behave, because in the morning, you have to present your data and you have to, you know, it's, you have to talk about math and analysis and significance test and reliabilities and if you didn't sleep, you might not make it. to do chi-squares with a hangover? Well said, well said Toby, very well said. <laughs> so Veronica... Not even do, but talk about them, it's difficult. <laughs> Veronica, these days you're back living in Barcelona. But today, tonight, we're in Las Perlas, which is a mezcaleria in downtown Los Angeles. So, please share with the park what brings you to sunny Southern California on a windswept, overcast, rainy day. I didn't see the rain yet, uh, but I'm sure in California when it's grey, they talk about rain as if it's about to rain. Um, I I'm here uh, visiting a friend in LA and some colleagues after attending and participating in and organizing a conference uh, for social and personality psychologists in San Diego that brought 3,000 people to the conference. 3,000 people? And were you giving a paper or a poster or something it's, like that? I did not give a paper or a poster. I had three posters, my some students and collaborators presenting joint projects, but I did not give a talk. Uh, and it was a, that was done on purpose, actually. I was very exhausted. Organizing this conference was a very, very exhausting job, and I did not want the extra stress of giving a talk. And who knows, maybe I would have rejected my own talk <laughs> because I was in the organizing, you know, the scientific program committee. So. Who is this woman? Who does she think she is? So what were the three poster papers about with your students? One was about cultural identification, acculturation styles and political ideology among Mexican-Americans. And we're very excited about this one because, you know, with the upcoming elections, everyone is talking about his. It happens every, every four sure. years. Who are Hispanics, and you know, and then you have one side of the political spectrum talking about them like they are this sort of unified, you know, uniform cultural group, and the other side saying, "What a second." Uh, and yes, the other side also sometimes does this. But Hispanics, as everyone knows, are a very diverse group. So we show that some Hispanics identify with the Republican Party. And we were interested in what about this Republican versus Democratic Hispanics. In this particular context was Mexican-Americans. Uh, might be what are the relationships between the political orientation and their degree of identification with Mexican-American culture and American culture? and also their uh, immigration ideology, do they believe in assimilation or integration? So we have the expected results, which is that Mexican-Americans who identify as Republican have weaker Mexican identification, higher American identification, and they believe that assimilation is the strategy um, that all immigrants should use, while Democratic, what Mexican-Americans who identify as Democrats uh, have a much more complex and diverse pattern where uh, they identify with Mexican culture uh, a little bit more 
actually the other way around. The Republican Mexican Americans identify with American culture way more than the Democrat Mexican Americans. There are no differences in Mexican identification between the Republican and the Democrat Mexican Americans. Uh, so really, what makes what drives the difference is how much identify with American culture. So no one can say that. Um, Democrat, you know, Democrat Mexican Americans or Republican Mexican Americans differ in their involvement with Mexican culture. The, the big difference is how much they identify yeah. with American culture. So they're both equally Mexican in that way, and that is really good news because sometimes, um, um, you know, polit politicians use uh, their stereotypes about who is Mexican and who is American for the purpose of getting political votes. And they will say that uh, Republic so Democrats might say that Republican Mexican Americans are less Mexican, but it's not true. They're just more American. You need to you need to measure those two cultural identifications separately to be able to deconstruct this. And how do you measure these? There's no slide rule that you can simply put on around a Mexican American's head. You, oh, there are surveys that, with multi-items, that will ask you, uh, with one item, sometimes three items, how much uh, do you identify with Mexican culture, how much you identify with American culture, and they can um, rate each of those scales separately. So someone can be high on both of them, low on both of them, high on one, high on the other one. Yeah. And how much does language play a part in this? Language retention and utilization? Interesting. We usually those use language as a control variable, so controlling for how fluent they are, in this case was with English, within controlling for that, we found those differences. Oftentimes when you do this kind of work, you have to control for variables like how long they've been in the country, their levels of fluency in English, and things like that, so that your results are not driven by basically just how long they've been here, or how much they've been exposed to how you know, knowledgeable they are of American culture. We wanted to keep that constant, and keeping that constant, what do you get? Yeah, so you try to control for the emergence of English too. Like competency as well as exposure to American culture. Because of course you're going to be less identified with American culture if you haven't been here very long or if you don't sure. speak English. So for us, those are control variables. I was very struck tonight on my way, just when I was leaving to come and meet you, I was watching a novella, telenovela, and it actually had English subtitles, which made me quite normal. It wasn't something I'd experienced before. It was a Mexican telenovela about hot sex in a radio station. It's probably for the second and older generation. Exactly. Yeah. But, but English subtitles, very interesting, right? So that this meant that in families where there's kitchen Spanish spoken, but maybe actually the young people are happier watching things in English, they can still watch with the family. But actually, from a, from a purely educational point of view, this is great because it also means that Whoever is watching this show who do and doesn't speak Spanish might actually learn some English watching those novelas. Oh, right. So it's so you know, one group can get better at Spanish, the other group can get better at English. No. Uh, so let's, in the 2000 and 2004 elections in the United States, and by the way, uh, the podcast is listened to in 50 countries each week. Oh God! And 50% of the people listening are in the U.S., but 50% are not. So 
it just for your information, it's your good podcast. To, to relative, yeah, okay. it's good to relativize the experiences we talk about, okay. right? which you're used to doing anyway, since that's yeah. your shtick. Yeah. But in the 2000 2004 general elections in the United States, the Republicans, in their strategy for targeting Hispanic or Latino or Latina voters, assumed that for George H.W. Bush to win, which as we know he did, at least supposedly, he needed to get 40% nationally of that vote. One of the problems for the current Republican candidates for their party's nomination as presidential candidate is that nobody is above 31%. In fact, nobody's even at 31% amongst Latinos, Hispanics. In terms of uh, express sympathy towards the candidate? or Preparedness to vote. Okay. Now, for, for that candidate? Yes. No. It's no one in the voice. You know, Obama is at the same rate, slightly ahead of where he was in 2008. He's actually, despite the, the vast numbers of punitive actions taken by the federal government against uh, in Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Well, the federal government too, not just yeah, the yeah, state yeah. governments yeah, yeah. like Arizona. Uh, Obama's doing very well, the Republicans are not. But again, there's this problem of essentializing the Hispanic or Latino block, which they do cavalierly. So, in other words, third generation Cuban Americans in the south of Florida are treated the same way as first generation. Mexican Americans in Arizona. So it's a very mad metric. But that's what they're thinking about. That the Republicans think they'll never get more than 40% national of the Spanish speaking or Spanish speaking vote. So that's the best they can do. I'm not sure I have much to say about this. I'm not I'm not a political psychologist, which by the way was one of the um, tracks in this conference that we had in San Diego and it's a really exciting you know, really exciting field within psychology. Um, but I would say that the problem with all of this is that they Hispanic culture is incredibly diverse as we know. First of all Unlike, let's say, African Americans who are racially more or less, you one could say, homogeneous in the sense that they are, you know, they're black. Hispanics, the label Hispanic is a mixture of ethnicity, culture, race. So the Hispanics were black, the Hispanics were Native American, the Hispanics were white. You know, Hispanics from Colombia, Argentina, Spain, they're white. Hispanics from the Caribbean, they're black. Hispanics from uh, Central America oftentimes have Native American blood. So, trying first of all, trying to describe them as a homogeneous group is a mistake, as everyone knows. But there, this really poses very interesting questions for psychology. I mean, what are the issues? I mean, some they can also be black, by the way, if they're from the Caribbean. So some of them might say Obama is the candidate I will vote for. He's a mixed race. You know, café con leche person, I don't care if he doesn't speak Spanish or if he doesn't speak Spanish very well, I'll vote for him. He, like me, is the son of two of a white person and a black person. So, unless this diversity among Hispanics is acknowledged and, and people understand all the different identity politics that might be driving, if they are driving the vote, because they don't drive the vote for everybody, by the way, there are people for whom, you know, identity issues are not the primary concern of their vote, uh, and even when it is for some people they're not aware of it necessarily. And identity politics are not the 
unique, it's, it's not a unique phenomenon among minorities. Identity politics also matter to whites. Often they vote, when they vote for a white candidate, that is identity politics playing a role in, you know, political behavior. But unless people acknowledge that that complexity and design efforts, campaigns, and, you know, discourses that somehow target all this complexity, I have no idea what's going to happen with that vote. The study that you did with your colleagues towards this poster paper that you were describing, do you factor in ideas about Mr. Sache, for example, the idea of a mixture that is part of the fabric of ideology in Latin America about social identity, where the claim is made that everybody's mixed, however fallacious this may be in yeah. terms of yeah. How it maps onto social inequality, which in many parts of Latin America is hugely mapped onto conventional racial categories. Nevertheless, it's a very important ideological substrate and part of the superstructure of Latin American ideas and a very positive influence, I think, conceptually. We haven't yet. Um, you have to realize a poster is like like a pre 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 paper. So oftentimes when you present a poster, it's something you finish analyzing the week before the conference. Uh, so we haven't yet, but that's a very good idea because we actually can look into that. Not only we have the standard demographic variables about how long they've been in the country, how well they speak each of the languages, why they came to the United States, the first generation, uh, and they are citizens and they vote. Uh, we we have also a question about going back to my earlier point about Hispanics being racially diverse. Yeah. We have also data about their their racial identification, so we will to look into that and see if that makes a difference in, in the political orientation. Yes. So just explain to us the process with the poster. This was one poster of of three. Of three. With this yeah. poster, many of the idea is that this is one of the paths along the way towards producing a scholarly article in an academic journal. Right, 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 right. And oftentimes in psychology, and this to some extent happens also in, you know, empirical sociology, we are as interested in the, in the normative aspects of all of this. By that I mean how all those different variables that I mentioned earlier relate to each other and uh, provide an interesting picture of the political orientation among Mexican-Americans. But you have to understand that oftentimes those dynamics apply to other groups. Uh, so oftentimes when we do this, we are equally interested in understanding the Mexican-American vote as we are in understanding the ethnic minority vote. So we, uh, unlike anthropology, which oftentimes has very, very, very rich theoretical orientation, you know, sort of uh, approach to the group that's studying. In psychology, we take a little bit of a distance, a little bit of a larger distance from the group we're studying, and we're saying, of course, my results will have to be explained and understood in the context of the group I'm studying, but I'm hoping to make a bigger point about the experience of being an ethnic minority in the United States and how ethnic and American orientation relate to political uh, ideology. Um, and the reason we have to do that is it's, it's an interesting one, and is that the only way to survive in, in, in American Western psychology doing this kind of work, it is if part of your message is a message that can be applied to, the, to other groups and other processes like that, right? 
uh, there is a resistance, and we can talk about this in, you know, some other day, to work that only speaks to the group that your data represents. Because then they will read it and they say, great, very interesting. But somehow, the way this work gets acknowledged, recognized, you know, positively evaluated, and energized other kinds of work in psychology is if it also has implications for other so what other work. You're suggesting is and I, I'm saying this because I know you care about those issues, Toby. Well, it's very kind of you to think of me in this crucial moment tonight. But what that suggests is that there is a universalism at the heart of the project that must be shown to apply and therefore cultural difference must be ultimately reduced to a variable. And that, and that universalism is to be acknowledged, but sometimes it, it can also be quantified. When you do, you do comparative work, so I have this data with Mexican-Americans, but you know, I know a colleague who's done similar kind of work with Asian-Americans, and then we can compare you know, the same type of variables with this. Remember also in psychology, we keep our surveys pretty standardized across groups. So instead of saying, how often do you speak Spanish? Or how will you speak Spanish? We'll say, how often do you speak Chinese? And how will you speak Chinese? So it really um, allows for very interesting comparison between data sets and projects across different cultural groups. Because we keep the, we keep the, the, ta we keep the measures constant often. Yes. I understand that, but I, I think you've taken with one hand and given with the other, or you've slapped me with one hand and shaken my hand with the other. In the oh, and I wasn't aware I was slapping you. Part <sighs> of what you're saying seems to me to be that there is real value, comparatively, in having standardized methods. But part of you seems to be saying that a lot of this standardization is really about obtaining recognition within the field rather than yeah. actually about knowledge. Well, you, you, you got me. Because if I have to choose between not being able to present this poster <laughs> at a conference where 3,000 people are presenting and presenting it at a small conference for, with only you know Mexican-American psychologists, and I go to some of those conferences, by the way, uh, I have to I have to play both games because I feel like I serve the field and the groups I study better if I make make it into the mainstream with those kinds of questions and those kinds of samples. So and they and the mainstream feel there are all kinds of benefits. They also feel like oh we're you know we have this kind of, look there is a whole truck in this conference about ethnic psychology and cross-cultural psychology and cultural psychology, they feel, a, you know, that sort of white guilt, they feel a little bit better, and they oftentimes they, they, they find it interesting, they listen to it, they, 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 get, they, they get it, they like it, and they start doing it themselves. But you have to kind of middle in the middle, and sometimes I'm middle in the middle, which I'm happy to do because I'm one, I am actually in the middle myself, is relate to them with your methodology and with your variables, but study questions and groups that are underrepresented in mainstream you have psychology. To love your instrument, like a cellist or a flutist. Or flutist. Okay, so that's poster paper number one. Tell us about number two. Number two was a poster about bicultural Asian Americans, broadly defined. So we had Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, all kinds of groups there. And the paper was about there is this, 
this is this is my main line of research. This this very extensive and well established literature on cultural differences between, you know, the Western world and the rest, with regard to all kinds of fascinating things like emotion, identity, personality, values. It's a very vibrant and well-respected field within psychology. It's called cross-cultural psychology and cultural psychology. But oftentimes they compare monocultural samples. So my research in the last 10 years has been, what about people who have two cultures? Where do they fit into this story? Who is studying them? So I devoted you know, the last 10, 15 years to this. Do they, fit in the, do they sort of fall in the middle? They're not like American, they're not like, you know, like Asian-born people, they sort of show some patterns that are in the middle, and the answer is not necessarily. Sometimes they behave in very American ways, sometimes they behave in very Asian ways, sometimes they behave, sounds like there are two monocultural people within one. And this poster was about there are their preferences for, for emotions. So there's preferences for emotions. Okay, so preferences for emotions basically is this um, new concept in psychology that's been kind of powerful in the last three or four years, developed by Jeannie Tsai, who is a Chinese professor, Chinese American professor at Stanford, who realized that oftentimes when Americans talk about emotions, they talk about the emotions that they love. And those emotions tend to be related to excitement and energizing, like fun, pleasure, excitement, surprise. And those, are all, those emotions predict well-being among Americans. But she found out that they don't predict well-being among other cultural groups, for whom their culture doesn't socialize them to care so much about having fun, being energized, being alert, being excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, she basically developed design of research that shows that the emotions that are favored and preferred in terms of, you know, she has questions like, look at all these emotions, surprise, excitement, sadness, calmness, relaxation, um, you know, positive and negative emotions, and she will ask people from different culture groups to rate how desirable they find those emotions. Keep in mind that our affinity for certain emotions drives things like the products we buy, the partners we choose, the, all our everyday activities, all kinds of things. I mean, I don't think people are aware how much our, what she calls, ideal emotions drive our everyday life. People do all kinds of things to feel excited, energized, valued, appreciated. So anyway, so our poster was about Chinese Americans. Do they prefer American types of emotions? Do they prefer more Chinese or Asian types of emotions? What, what, and what I mean by Chinese or Asian types of emotions, every culture feels the whole spectrum of emotions. But what she has found is that Asians oftentimes will put a premium on emotions that um, are, we describe as low arousal, calm, low arousal, low arousal, feeling calm. Feeling neutral. The serenity rather than excitement. Exactly. I mean, it's not by accident that Asia, you know, and Asian religions endorse things like detachment from, you know, 
strong emotions, um, th things like you know, Zen philosophy and Buddhism and yeah, no. Latin cultures are high. That's actually something that Latin cultures say with American emotion. Latin cultures are a very interesting intersection between the West and the East. They're really in between. They share some qualities with Eastern cultures and they share some qualities with Western cultures. But this poster basically shows that we can manipulate the kind of emotion a American and an Asian American bicultural will prefer. We can create a situation where he or she will prefer American types of emotions, and, and then another situation where he or she will prefer Asian types of emotions. And the point of this research, which is basic research, is not applied research, is to show that it doesn't make sense to consider them an average or in-betweenness between Asian things and American things. They are really Sounds like you wouldn't call a bilingual someone who speaks average. You know, say when when we think about you know people like yourself, Toby, who speak Spanish and English. No one would say that you speak average to bad English and average to bad Spanish. You can in some situations you will you will speak perfect Spanish. In some situations you will you know you will speak perfect English. The same thing can be said about cultural practices and behaviors. You don't have to average average out across your cultural orientations. You don't sort of like combine them into one thing. You sometimes behave like you're just American or just Asian. And this seems like not a, might seem not like a very important point to some people, but it's extremely important in mainstream psychology, who oftentimes tends to perceive biculturals as people who are in this middle state between what they were when they were Asians and what they will be when they become Americans. So it's very important for us to show, no, 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 they're 100% American sometimes, and they're 100% Asian right, sometimes. Right, so it's not about being and then becoming. It's not a stage of life. It is actually part of being. Yeah. That you have, in a sense, a split subjectivity. It would like saying a woman who is a professional mother, it's half a mother, half a professional. No, she's 100% professional, and she's 100% mother. You know, and... No, but, you, but, but for us, it's very important to show this empirically. Yeah. So we show it. So this is where, in a sense, an ideological point can be made. And of course, it's also one we believe in scientifically. Through the utilization of methodology that is acceptable to the mainstream. Yes, you get to make really interesting points that hopefully serve all kinds of audiences. Other agendas and other that, that is my goal in my yeah. research. Yeah. So it has been for a long time. I see it. I want to come back to that in a minute, but I'd like to hear it. Well, do you need do you want another one? Here. I want to come back to the posters, though, because there was a third one. Tell us a little bit about the third poster. I'm blanking on it right now. It was a, an empty poster. No, no, it wasn't empty. <laughs> Uh, ask me about that one later. And it was a grad student and uh, I am blanking on it right now. Let's move on now to talk about uh, where you are right now. You spent many years uh, studying and then being a professor in the United States, but you've gone back to Spain now, to Catalonia. And what are the major things you're working on there and where are you? Well, um, what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to explore the applicability and replicability 
of some of the things that are studied in the United States in European context. And that's a great challenge because Europe is a completely different story. You know, the, the history... Immigration is a relatively recent phenomenon in Europe, not, not in countries like Germany and France, which are two countries that are not doing great in terms of um, acknowledging, you know, things like hyphenated entities and biculturalism. They're doing a terrible job. 20,000 Africans in London in, the, in uh, 1750. But anyway, so I'm not a historian. So sometimes I'm trying to understand why is it that Europe has such resistance to hyphenated many European countries that should actually qualify. Because it turns out that Spain is actually doing great about this, relatively speaking. But of course Spain never had a strong national identity. Franco tried to impose it on everyone forever and ever and ever. And it wasn't there before Franco. And as soon as he died, people were like... I will be, you know, Catalan Spanish. If they say that, I will be Basque Spanish, I will be Gallego Spanish. So they're much more, much more comfortable with sort of nested, multiple identities than it is France or Germany or, you know, some. Or oh, Eastern Europe. Italy, Britain, much of Eastern and Central Europe. No. And, and in your case. The UK, the UK is actually not too bad, believe it, at least compared to Germany and France. Well, I think the point is there are two UKs. There's a relatively civilized, cosmopolitan, exciting place Just like called, the US. called London. Yeah. And then there's shitbaggery, which is most of the rest of the country. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, I don't know. That, that makes sense actually in every country. I think the same thing can be said of you know, every other country. In your case, you're from Barcelona, so you grew up clandestinely speaking Catalan as well as Castellano. I, I spoke Catalan to my father often and and Spanish to my mom. She was Castilian? She's from the from Navarra. So when you were I mean you were barely born when Franco died. No 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 I was born uh, before that. <laughs> barely alive when I was very young, but I was born before that. <laughs> When, very, very young. When the Hinealissimo died, were you able at that point to speak Catalan in school or was this only something that happened with your dad and other children? You could, by the time I was born, Franco liked Catalan instruction, but Catalan instruction was like one hour a week and it, and it, was, it had the same, it was treated as a sort of foreign language, you know, it's like... Okay, you know, you get Catalan one hour a week. So then thing. after he's gone, when you're, you know, really moving on to the uh, latter stages of primary and secondary education and college, suddenly it becomes possible to do this. Yes, yes, in a big way, in a very, very big way. And uh, So did you study psychology in Catalan or Castilian? Both. So some structures, I mean, both language, you know, so there was a very peaceful and uh, successful transition right after Franco. Uh, it was not perfect by any means because they, you know, a lot of people were, that should have been prosecuted were not and this is why the judge that has been, you know about this? But, but it was peaceful and it was... Um, well done, and so basically, professors at the university 
have the right to teach in Spanish or English? And, uh, Spanish so, or English? I'm sorry, Spanish or Catalan. Or Catalan. I, I said English only because I'm at a university where they also teach in English. And, um, and then it was up to the professor to teach in Catalan or Spanish. And, and the students, honestly, if you ask me which courses you took in Spanish and which courses you took in Catalan, I would not be able to tell you. Sometimes I speak to people in Catalan and I don't recall which language I used to speak to them. It's a truly bilingual place. So switching between languages is so natural. At least for people who are, you know, born there and raised or spent a significant amount of time there. So some of this uh, research that you, you're doing derives in part from some of your own experiences as a person growing up and as a professional person here in the United States. Well, what happens is that eventually all of this caught, caught up to me. I try so hard to not let it influence my research because, as I said earlier, we pay, place such premium psychology to being objective and not studying yourself. And um, so, what I did for a long time, I study cultural differences, and only later I realized, well, wait a second, you know. So much, work, so much great work has been done about cultural differences and cataloging them and documenting them and developing taxonomy of cultural differences. That's great. But what about all the people in the world who I believe are the majority who are, don't belong to just one culture? They belong to more than one culture or have been exposed to more than one culture. No one's studying them. So that's when I switched to the work I've been doing for the last 10, 15 years. But what I did when I started doing this kind of work, I... I not consciously study every other group except Spanish-speaking people, <laughs> Asians. <laughs> it also had to do with the fact that my most valued, smart colleagues, many of them were Asians from Hong Kong, another bicultural place, by the way. So, and I wasn't driven by an interest on understanding a specific cultural group. I really wanted to understand the basic processes involved in managing two cultures. So I saw no problem whatsoever in studying Asians. So I did. I have a lot of publications about Asian Americans. They're multi-co-author, multi-author publications. And it's like, you look at the last names and it's like, Morris, Hom, Benin Martinez. And this is one of the things I like about my field. You can never predict from someone's last name what cultural group they're studying. That, of course, has this. Benefits and it has its advantages and disadvantages. Works for me too. Toby is often dancing. <laughs> and I was once about to give, up, give a keynote, and as I was standing up to deliver it, a woman said to me, Soto Voce, Does it ever occur to you that you're invited to give these things because people think you're a woman? Because of your name? <laughs> nice. Toby can be a woman's she's, name, but, she's, name but she's wrong because women like guests invited to give talks than men. So, shall you get invited to give talks despite the fact that some people might think you're a woman? In any event, so you're, you're working very much in, for want of a better term, multicultural or intercultural teams. No. Right? Where a cultural resonance with the particular group being studied is one factor, 
Yes. Perhaps. Uh, and that allows a certain authenticity, maybe a certain entree to the group, credibility. Then there's scientific credibility and authenticity, which can come along with the idea. Yeah. But you presumably like to construct work groups that provide that rainbow horizon. Yes. And my work groups involve people who are multicultural. So, and, and psychologists training the, you know, the sort of Western methods. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so that works very well for me. So tell me, when you asked about, in Europe, multiculturalism, often associated with the United States, and often derided in Europe, Yes, they, those ter this term has very different meanings, as I learned. Uh, in the United States, has almost like demographic connotations. Like, of course, we are a multicultural society. You know, we, we have people from all over the world, um, and uh, we like Canada to some extent, not as much as Canada endorse sometimes in some places and for some issues multicultural policies like you know if I want to take my driver's license in California I can take the test in Spanish or English or in a variety of languages I can become a US citizen not speaking almost a word of English as I what I find out when I became myself a US citizen I have I have dual citizenship by the way uh, and it was amazing to, and the, and the the judge who, uh, who who led the ceremony, who who, who welcomed us as American citizens, herself had an accent, and she was an Arab American. Uh, and this woman sitting next to me didn't speak a word of English; she was from Romania. But anyway, um, so this is a knowledge of multiculturalism in some parts of the United States as just the reality of society, as a societal reality. When you get to Europe, it has very different connotations. Laicite in France, for example. Multiculturalism is an obstacle, is a problem, is a problem in terms from a demographic point of view, because you know the anti-immigrant sentiment in so many countries, the uh, fear of Islam, um, the fear of Africa. Yes, of course. Related to that, but also separate to... And then, again, as a story, I'm not a historian, but I get the sense that history, so many countries in Europe have fought so hard to finally um, feel confident and somewhat somewhat secure around a certain you know, national identity defined in terms of language and history, then when they think that immigrants might alter that uniformity, they, they just freak out. I mean, this is why immigrant receiving countries like Canada, United States, Australia, are, they are in an advantage. They were immigrant, you know, they were they're different. If I'm from North Africa and I move to Barcelona, am I expected by the state, by the bourgeois press, by employers to learn Castellano and Catalan or not? If you want a job, yes. Both. Yeah. No, uh, you. 
practically speaking, you will get a job if you only speak Spanish, not Catalan. Uh, the big secret is that you will get even a better job and you will be um, liked instantly by everybody if you also speak Catalan. It will open doors. Um, and, you know, people should not be obligated to do this. They should do it if they want to. But Catalan will really, 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 there are studies about this, really helps immigrants with upward mobility. Because, uh, you know, a woman at a bread store might need help and she will hire a, a woman from Morocco who speaks Spanish and can communicate with with uh, customers. But if she also speaks some Catalan or speaks Catalan well, uh, she will be very welcome to the business. And if only because so many people in Catalonia speak Catalan. But remember, it's a bilingual state, so if you want to get by just with Spanish, you will also be able to survive. I'm sorry to hone in so much on where you're no, from, it's fine. To say it, it, yeah. it's of particular interest to me, especially when you have a, a sovereign state like Spain that is so divided by language and region that it's very, and, and that also is seen by many in Europe as the frontier with Africa. To me, it's such a fascinating place to think about these questions to and with and with a political party right now running, you know, run, running the country, who has been trying so hard forever to to impose that sort of central national identity. This is one of the things that interests me about something you mentioned earlier, which is one of my heroes in life, uh, Judge Garçon, the. Spanish judge who tried very hard to put Pinochet behind bars, the Chilean dictator, who has been heroic in my view, in trying to make sure that justice is done for those who were imprisoned, murdered, in other ways done in under the Franco regime. And for those who don't know, this is currently facing a court case in Spain uh, where basically the far right and the children Minus Olympias, yeah. are seeking to remove him from his judicial position. The Guardian newspaper in Britain ran a, made a brilliant video about this. It came out last week about a 10 minute one. And El País uh, has a great video that came out a few hours ago. One of the things that struck me uh, when I was watching the derechistas, the opponents speak of Garçon, Los fachas. Yeah, is that they are fucking crazy. I mean, when they talk, they wear, they're all very light-skinned men wearing suits and ties. When they speak, they sound as though they can't be seen. I mean, that they need to be taken away and locked up. Because their actual critique of him, at least in the video for The Guardian, where they're speaking Spanish, they're not speaking English, is essentially he tries to get attention on himself. He tries to get media focus on him. Therefore, he should be in prison. But they can across this completely and utterly out of their minds. Yeah. And really intolerant. Well, they hate him. They hate him, and they were lucky to find a, some so-called irregularities in the way he, uh, you know, ordered those uh, escuchas, those uh, um, hearings. Hearings, yes. 
phone tappings and tappings and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's basically a vendetta against him. They they want him in jail. They hate him. I mean, he, I, I, who cares what Baltasar Garzón's personality is like? It could be indeed that he is not, not, not even cheap back. It could be that he really. I mean, he's a very popular and very um, well respected, and one would might even say powerful person. Uh, but that is relevant. Did he do it? Did he didn't do it? And uh, they, yeah, I mean, it, this is a completely politically driven witch hunt. And I want to ask you about it because I think it does relate to these questions of multiculturalism, integration, cultural difference. Is that on the one hand, these derechistas, fascistas, want to talk about history obsessively, you know, the grandeur of Spain and the idea of the birth of the nation and how it matters. On the other hand, they keep saying, forget about dictatorship. Let's move on. I don't understand how you can logically combine a fetishization of history in the past and an idea of Spanish imperial grandeur. And on the other hand, say, forget about people being imprisoned and killed and losing their jobs. But any fascist will, any fascist will do that, right? They would say, we relate, you know, we talk about history and we bring it up again when it was when when we have to legitimize uh, our honorable origins and you know and the legitimacy of Spain and the country Spain, the the country Franco. Franco was responsible for the unification of Spain, the glorious Spain, and we are one country, one language, one people. So when it's convenient, they relate to those historical facts, but then they also they also have goals, and the goals are to get people's attention and people's sympathy and uh, uh, and convince you that they. I mean, I think it's like they want to be modern, but at the same time, their identity completely. You know, relies on on an old ancient view what Spain was like when Franco tried to you know impose that Spain to everyone. So yeah, it's like so that's the Veronica, in the time left, we've got about ten minutes left. I'd, I'd love to go back to your research if I can, having taken you into this area, and ask you about, in a sense, the politics of applying. U.S., Canadian, Australian ideals of multiculturalism and experiences of multi-ethnic immigration to Europe. I have some ideas about how to yeah. do that. Well, is that the right thing to do? And how should it be done? I think it is the right thing to do. Well, I'm not a, again, I'm not a political psychologist, I'm not a political scientist, so I cannot speak about those the benefits or the advantages or disadvantages of those of this reality and, and this uh, the reality I mean you, you can talk about multiculturalism in terms of the presence of people from different cultures and you can talk about multiculturalism at the individual level as the presence of people who identify with more than one culture that's the level of analysis that I work with at the individual level right so which is in a multicultural society 
more and more people will identify with more than one culture. And it's crucial that interpersonally yeah. one finds a way yeah. of navigating these You can differences. be a Spanish, you know, born in Zaragoza, but your wife is Chinese and you internalize some and learn about China and you, you, you realize you know, different ways of seeing the world and different sets of values and different languages. So, okay. So, for me, the power, the power, the where the tools to not, I don't want to say convince, but then I will go as far as say demonstrate. Because convincing is like is about persuasion, and demonstrating is about data. And multiculturalism is beneficial to society. Putting aside that it also brings some challenges and difficulties, and you know, integral conflict and you know, prejudice. Rest at studies at the individual level. So we have shown that people who, like ethnic minorities, who presumably had a choice between identifying only as ethnic or only as American or both, and now we're exploring those issues in Europe, you identify only as Pakistani, or you identify only as Spanish, you identify as both. They, that kind of identification has cognitive and social advantages. They're more creative, you think in more complex ways, you have wider repertoires of behaviors, wider repertoires of social networks. So the social capital at the individual level, which of course multiplies to social capital at the group level, it's, it's obviously evident when we do this kind of research. So that's the data we want to take to policymakers and say, you don't even have to endorse multiculturalism from this sort of almost paternalistic point of view of we have to tolerate, I hate the word tolerance, tolerate other groups because they also have a right. By the way, those are legitimate discourses. You know, tolerance from the point of view of human rights, from the point of view of uh, 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 just like being a member of society and having equal rights. But we try to convince people it makes sense to do it also at the level of the benefits it brings to the individual. Not just the ethnic minorities, but also the majority individuals. Because we have data that shows that when you're exposed to more than one culture, you're more creative, we give you moral dilemmas and you solve them in more complex, nuanced ways, you speak more languages, uh, I mean, there's a whole literature about this. And what has been fascinating about this is that some of those findings have been sort of been established with bilingualism literature, but no one thought that speaking to language would have benefits that somehow would replicate to the domain of having two cultures. Right? So this is, this was just very cognitive, by the way, because you do have to do experiments where you have a monocultural group, a bicultural group, monocultural group that is ethnic only, bicultural group that is ethnic American, and a monocultural group that is only American. And I have some papers that show that there are real benefits to uh, being multicultural. But listen to this closely. Being multicultural for everybody. So what it means is that the immigrants themselves should be multicultural, not just the society. So the the discourse in Europe is that multiculturalism is about allowing cultural groups to remain separate and involved with only themselves. Separate Muslim schools, separate language schools, and there is no sense of and, and, and it doesn't matter how well they learn the host culture we are going to let them, this, this is what Holland did many, many years ago, um, before anyone was thinking about these issues. So, 
the implications of this of the studies are that immigrants need to also learn the host culture because remember we're talking about biculturalism and host receiving you know members of the society will also benefit themselves so I guess the answer is that the benefits disappear when Autochthonous remain uninvolved and uninterested and separated from the other cultures and the immigrants do the same. That's where you get the problem. Give me a response to this as a last thing. It's a real-world dilemma or issue. About 15 months ago, I was in a hospital in London and space was at an absolute premium. Patients were on gurneys, not waiting to be put into theatre or out of theatre, but because there was no room for them to be. But in the outpatient section, there were two waiting rooms, both very large. One for Muslim women, one for everybody else. Interesting. Very large space has been taken up for to satisfy this cultural difference. When gravely ill people are always easily bumped, knocked over. I saw numerous veiled women in the general waiting room where I was. You saw, I'm sorry, what kind of women? You, numerous veiled women. Yeah, in the room, in the general room. In the general waiting room, having no problem whatsoever. I saw five or six. I decided to no doubt break some regulation and look into the equally vast waiting room for Islamic women in which there was no one. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel very conflicted about this in terms of allocation of resources, yes, allocation of space, you should. respect for cultural difference, the desire to combat a notion of an integrative Christian whiteness. You know, I, I don't know what to think about. It makes no sense. About it. it makes no sense. What you do is you have one room where the doctors and nurses that will be receiving all those people, to a large extent, many of them have bicultural competencies. So if I'm a doctor, so you just make sure that you have enough doctors there who, you know, I can talk to you, Toby, in English, or I can talk to, you know, Fatima from Morocco if I want to, and they don't have to be in separate rooms. And see, so Fatima says. You know, I definitely want a female doctor. We can do that. Right, but this is not about seeing a doctor or a nurse. This is the waiting room before you go, before you're taken off to see such a specialist. Oh. This is literally like being in a bar as we yeah, are. Yeah, I, I don't think it makes makes much sense to do that. I feel very conflicted about it. Uh, understanding how crucial gender differences are in so many public domains in terms of restrooms in public domains as opposed to restrooms in houses. You know, we go to a party, we go to a bar. At the bar, women mostly are going to want to have their own restroom and men don't want yeah. to piss. At a party, they're not going to care. On the other hand, you know, no, maybe it doesn't take that much that many resources. Maybe, basically, they have the same set of doctors for both rooms and the waiting room is just... I mean, you're right. You said, you did say earlier, space was, was tied. And a premium. But, yeah. but it becomes, it seems to me, one could regard that as a trivial example. I don't think it is. No, it's not. No, no, no. It's very important. And it gets Everything I've been talking about, I've been talking about at a abstract level. Then it has to translate into specific decisions and, you know, and 
applications to the health domain, education domain, you know, law domain. So yeah. So you want a lot of your work to have a, an application in public policy? I won't be the one doing the applications because I, I consider myself a sort of basic researcher. But I, yeah, I would like, I would like it to inform applied research, of course. Veronica, thank you very much for giving us this time. I want to extract a promise from you, if I may, which is that when we're next together, you can tell us a little bit more about the history of your research and the future of your research. Will you do that? Thank you. Yes, I will do that. Fabulous. You made an old man happy.